0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 412 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. How's it going? Good. How are you?
1: It's American Library Association midwinter week. Indeed. My, My brain is all over the place. Um... Yeah. If you're going to be at ALA this weekend in Philadelphia, come say hi to us in the Overdrive booth. Well, um, not me. Sorry. The Royal Us, uh, the Overdrive Us. I will be there um, in booth 1519. And then if you're going to be at the Public Library Association Conference in February in the much more, more fun, admittedly, Nashville. Yeah. Uh, Go say hi to Jill. I don't know the booth. Number. I don't either. I'm not going to that one, so nope. I don't know. Nope. Um, if you're gonna if you at this point if you haven't decided if you're gonna pick one go to Nashville do a big party we do um, that'll be fun that's not what this episode is about no though. it's not you want to talk about what we did for this I yeah <laughs> it's so big it's so it's so crazy I mean they're gonna see the name of the well
0: sure sure that's fair um, we got to interview Lois Lowry what
1: it was crazy we got to talk to Lois Lowry for like an hour I know and then. We just looked at each other afterwards. we were like, "Do we just go back?" I, I don't know how to function after that. Do we just go work now? Yep. Pretend we did. like we don't. Like we didn't just talk to mm-hmm. to a legend. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. She was so charming and delightful. She has a new book coming out, which we talk about at the beginning. But um, she was knitting and she was watching the impeachment trials yep but she told us we had her full attention yep um but yeah she told us not only about her new book but she told us about like the background information from the giver and number of the stars and so much more i'm just like there's a lot of stuff so- i'm just leaving everything in that she said oh yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> can't cut lois, lowry. I cut lois lowry
1: um
0: yeah so it's a long episode but well worth it
1: well well worth it uh i I can't get over. There's parts in there where I think you say like we literally had chills while she mm-hmm. was talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually doing a library event last night at Nordonia Falls, which is a local library here in Northeast Ohio. And I told them the story of that book. Um, and I got chills again <laughs> about it. Uh, yeah. Um, which, side note, that library has a pause to read program where um, young kids who are anxious can come in and read to therapy dogs. That's so cute. It was the best thing I ever they had a huge uh poster for it and now I want to go t- I want to like bring my older dog to that so yeah that sounds great yeah uh so yeah Lois Lowry crazy if people want to get a hold of us how can they do that
0: they can go to our website professionalbooknerds.com you can get all of our social links we are on twitter and instagram at probooknerds and you can email us at at overdrive.com.
1: yes you can and just because I've been good at doing this I'm going to say it again if you are doing our Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge. Uh, be sure to like send us Instagram posts or tweets and use our hashtag #PBNRead20. Uh, this is a good way to kind of let us follow along on your journey there. Oh, I will say Lois's book is about uh, her experiences during World War II, so you could probably use that as a fiction nonfiction. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. as the nonfiction mm-hmm. one for the same topic, you could probably do that. I um, think that would work out pretty well for you i
0: think it would too yeah there's actually like a lot of things from there that you could do you know once what you listen once you listen to what the book is about there are plenty of options
1: you could probably do her new book and number of the stars fiction you non-fiction probably could for the same thing be a little fun uh okay ala professional book nurturing challenge all of our stuff do we miss
0: anything i don't think so
1: I don't think so either. Unless you want to talk about the Spicy Oprah's Book Club thing. No. (laughs) Okay. I don't think so. We both have thoughts on that. Um, All right. Not ones we want to share on air. Nope. Uh, All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. I hope you guys enjoy this ludicrously cool conversation with living legend Lois Lowry on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hey everybody, it's Adam and Jill, and I can't believe I get to say these next words, but today we are joined by Lois Lowry, who is a true living legend and simply put, one of the greatest writers in history. Lois is well known for her Newbery Award winning novels, The Giver and Number of the Stars, among her countless other wonderful books. Her stories are read and in some cases banned in schools around the world, and they've helped shape the people and readers that Jill and I have both become. Uh, she has a new book coming out this spring titled On the Horizon that we're sure is going to be a must-read as well. Lois, it's an actual honor. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank
1: you. I love being described as a living legend. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... i
2: mean, it's, it's, well, It does make me feel very, very old. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, the living legend part is true. We—it It I, is true. I can remember reading number of stars and the Giver when I was in you know middle school and high school, and honestly thinking like whoever created these stories is exceptional and that was a high school me thinking that so I, it's it's very true, I promise. <laughs>
0: um, so before we talk about those books, can you tell us a little bit about your new book on the horizon? Uh, yes, uh, and I'll
2: mention briefly another new book that I've just completed. On the horizon, though, is uh, it's hard to talk about it briefly. I'm going to try to to make this brief, but (laughs) it deals with my own life and something that has always interested me, which is the connections that we have to other people in the world. I was born in Honolulu. And I I was born in 1937, which incidentally does make me very old, as a living legend uh, is is supposed to be. Uh, So, the first third of the book deals with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And in fact, the impetus for the book came about when, in my probably 60s, I looked at some old home movies that my father had taken and that were beginning to deteriorate, so I put them on uh, on uh, videotape. And there I am playing on the beach in, in Waikiki with my grandmother, who was visiting from Wisconsin. And in the background, i would seen these movies many times before, because when we were little, there was no television, and that was our visual entertainment, When Dad would set up the projector and show the home movies. But for the first time, I happened to have a friend in my living room watching this many years later. And he was a guy who uh, was retired from the Navy, but he'd been a nuclear submarine commander in the Navy. And it was he who said, oops, stop this, pause, uh, rewind, go back to the scene on the beach. And I did. And he said, look on the horizon. And that became the title of the book. What he saw on the horizon, which I had never noticed before, and it's kind of shrouded in fog, is a ship. And he recognized, being a naval officer, he recognized the outline of that ship, the silhouette of the ship, and he said, that's the Arizona. This was before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And when that event occurred, of course, uh, the Arizona was sunk, taking down with it almost 1200 young men and as soon as i became aware that i'm the child playing on the beach happy laughing in the background are all these young men who will soon be dead i began to be haunted by that and and i carried it around in my in my consciousness for some years before i sat down and started this book that's the, the first third of the book, and I did a lot of uh, research into the young men who were on that ship. Uh, Among them were 37 pairs of brothers, one pair of identical twins. Little details like that and about their individual lives. Those are in the first third of the book. Second third of the book begins some years later, but also at eight in the morning. When in southern Japan, a little boy eight years old feels the earth shake, thinks it's an earthquake, which are common in Japan. And then notices the sky change color. And he's seeing the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima, 50 miles from where he lived. Uh, That was a real little boy. And uh, I'm trying to figure out how to put this together in my mind. But the (laughs) second part of the book deals with children like him those who were affected by that day in August Mm -hmm. of 1945. Mm -hmm. And the third third of the book is back to me again, because when I was 11 years old, my father's job took us to Tokyo to live and we moved to Japan. I was a uh, solitary, introverted, a very curious child, and my father had bought me a bicycle. I used to ride my bike around the streets of Tokyo, near where we lived, and I used to pause and look at children playing on uh, the playground of a Japanese school. And there was a little boy, my age of thereabouts, who would stare at me as I stared at him, and maybe we smiled, I don't remember, but we certainly never spoke to each other, because we were so different, and I, I was part of the enemy that was occupying his country. He was a foreigner, our languages were different, our hair color was different, I was a very blonde and blue-eyed child. Nonetheless, with that as background, many years later when the Giver won the Newbery Medal, and I went to Miami to accept that medal, the Caldecott Medal was given to a man named Alan Say for a book called Grandfather's Journey. Alan Say is Japanese. We had breakfast together. He gave me a copy of his book. He drew a little picture in it and signed his name. I gave him a copy of my book. I signed my name, and then I signed my name in Japanese. And he chuckled and said, how are you able to do that? And I said, I used to live in Japan when I was a child. He said, where did you live? I told him, he said, oh, that's where I live. And we went on and on like that until suddenly he said, were you the girl on the green bicycle? And that entered my consciousness and haunted me. And then I began to put all these things together. Here were, here was a friendship between me and Alan and, and we've remained good friends. I saw him in August, he lives on the West Coast, I live in Maine, but I was out there and we had lunch together. Um, 50 years or so of friendship uh, which we missed because of that barrier between us. And so that becomes part of the uh, of the third section of the book. And I will add as well that the book is written in verse, something I've not done before, so that makes it very different from my zillions of previous books. <laughs> so that's that. It's called On the Horizon, it will be out in uh, April, uh, 2020.
1: Are, uh, as you were telling, the story of this book both you can't see us we're on the phone but both of our mouths were agape just every aspect of that is fascinating and incredible I,
2: I and, and you know what I forgot to tell you one thing because uh, there's so much that goes into it but Alan say was also the little boy who felt the earth shake uh, he lived in southern Japan in August of 1945
1: oh my gosh that there's so many connections. Actually, you went through a lot of things that we want to ask you about. And and one of them is I saw in an older interview that you discussed a lot about how your your own memories have kind of helped shape the stories that you've written. And and you talked about living in Tokyo and I and I know I think I saw that kind of the structure and idea for Uh, you know, The Giver was around how the Americanized community was that you lived in. But for Number of the Stars, that's another book that that actually came out of something a friend of yours told you, correct?
2: That's right. I had a very close friend. Sadly, she has now died. Uh, But her name was Annalisa. And she lived in this country, but she had a charming accent because she'd been born and had grown up in Copenhagen, in Denmark. And we took a trip together, Annalise and I, once when we were, gosh, I don't know, in our 60s, I suppose. And we went to Bermuda together for a week, and and, uh, we spent a lot of time talking. Uh, By now, at our age, our children had grown up, and we weren't distracted any longer by uh, those other things in our lives. And we sat and talked, and and one of the things that came up was the fact that uh, we had each lost an older sister when we were young. My sister had died of cancer, but she said her sister had died newly married, expecting a baby, had died in childbirth along with the, the child. And I was startled by that because I've, I've been to Denmark, and I know what a modern country it has with a good health care system. And I said, how could that happen? And she said, well, it was 1943, and... Uh, we were occupied by by Germany, by the Nazis, and uh, we were our nutrition was very bad. Our medical care was bad, and and so that's how it that happened. And then she went on to tell me <clears throat> the details of what took place in 1943 in Denmark. And I probably had been told that story before. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a college graduate. I've studied history. Uh, but I, I didn't remember it. And it's such a wonderful story because it's a story about human integrity and there are not enough such stories around. And it's a true story. And so I tried to figure out a way to make it accessible to kids. And and so I wrote a book which is fictionalized. The character in the book that she's based on, my friend Annalisa, uh, is a made-up character. Uh, but the events that happened are true. The fact that when the Nazis decided to move all the Jewish citizens of Denmark, and there were about 7,000 of them, to concentration camps. And they had, uh, this isn't in the book, but they had brought a big ship into the harbor to carry them uh, out, out of Denmark to where they were taking them. Uh, when a German official got them word of that, he told the um, the Danish government And, and therefore, they were able, through the churches, through the Lutheran churches, to notify the Christian population. And in a very short period of time, the Christian population of Denmark hid their Jewish population, almost 7,000 people, and, and smuggled them to Sweden and saved their lives. It was such an extraordinary act of integrity, as I said, and of courage. And so I I wrote it, you know, as a story, seen through the eyes of of a 10-year-old girl. Kids have asked me why the girl, the main character in the book, is the Christian child, uh, instead of her Jewish friend whom she saved. And the reason for that is because when you're writing a book, or when you're reading a book, the character who is the most important character is the one who makes decisions and who has choices to make. And that's what you enjoy subliminally when you're reading a book, is you follow along and wonder what decision you would have made. And in, in Denmark, in real Denmark in 1943, it was the Christians who had the decisions to make. The Jewish uh, population had no choices. And so uh, I chose the, the Christian child, the one who makes the choice and, and undergoes a good deal of danger in order to save her Jewish friend. So that's the story of Number of the Stars. The beautiful little girl on the cover is a, is a Swedish child, actually. But uh, I, I used to be a photographer, and I specialized in portraits of children, although the old man on the cover of the giver is also a photograph of mine. But the child on the cover of Number of the Stars uh, was, was a Swedish child whose parents had hired me to, to uh, photograph her, and I had saved the photograph. I mean, of course, I had given them the one they had commissioned, but I saved a copy of it. And this was years later, uh, when I wrote the book, and the publisher began to talk about what to put on the cover, and I brought out that photograph, and they said, can you get permission Uh to to uh, use it, and I called the parents, tracked them down, and they laughed, and they said, "You'll have to call her. She's all grown up." <laughs> and in fact, she is still just as beautiful as she was when she was ten. But she now has grown children herself. She's a mother of, of four four children.
0: It's amazing. I... I mean, that was actually going to be one of our questions, was to ask about the photographs because yeah. we had we had read that about them, which is just incredible. Yeah.
1: Um, you mentioned the, the photo from the cover of The Giver as well. You had kind of, you struck up a friendship with the person who was on the cover of that as well. And did he kind of shape how the story became? Uh,
2: the story or the
1: photograph, or perhaps both. Well, perhaps perhaps have. both. I, I've read that, you know, that's also a, a real... Uh, you know, a real person, yeah. but you were able to kind of shake up a friendship with that artist, right? And I was just, I'm curious if your, you know, friendship and kind of connection with him helped shape the story at all.
2: Uh, my friendship, I'm trying to remember the chronology, yes. I photographed him in 1977. I'd been sent by a magazine to do an article about a painter, who lived on an island, who lived alone on an island off the coast of Maine. Incidentally, uh, the artist and poet and wonderful human being, Ashley Bryan, uh, lives similarly on a nearby island all, all alone, on the, off the coast of Maine. Ashley's a good friend of mine. But this is seven years ago, 1977. I had never met Carl Nelson, but I went there in order to write the article and to photograph him. And, and if you know the photograph, you know what a wonderful face he has. Uh, when I was developing and printing the photographs back home in my darkroom, and my kids uh, in 1977, how old would they have been? It was a son who had been born in 1959, so... He would have been, I'm so bad at math, 10, 11, plus 7. He would have been 18 years old, I guess. At any rate, I remember him walking through the room where the darkroom sink was, where I, uh, you know, photography is so different now that it's digital, but in those days, you had to wash uh, the photograph and leave it in running water for a while. And that photograph was floating in the darkroom sink, and my son happened to walk through glanced down, and he said, who's that, Moses? And I was just in the process of writing a thank you note to Carl Nelson, his photograph it was, for the time I had spent with him, and for the lobster salad he had made me. (laughs) And so I I told him that, about my son, uh, saying, who's that, Moses? And, And he replied to me, and he signed his reply, love for Moses. Uh, he, of course, has since died. He was an old man then in 1977. Uh, but it's it's wonderful to see him live on in many ways because uh, of his art. I have some of his paintings hanging in my house, but also because of that photograph that's out there and millions of copies uh, of the book. But anyway, uh, the... The book was not written until many years later. Let me think, it was published probably in 1994, which meant that I wrote it in 92, 93. And uh, it, it reflected, the beginning of the book reflected, I think, an interest I've always had in, in one of two topics. I've always been very interested in, in the concept of memory, human memory, and also in dreams. And I think the reason for those two interests of mine is because they're two things that are absolutely individual. Nobody else in the world has the same dreams you do, and nobody else has the same memories. Even if you have an identical twin and you attended the same birthday party when you were five, your twin's memories of that event will be different from yours. So, I actually have written a book a book called Gossamer, which deals with dreams, but The Giver is the one that deals with human memory. And my interest in that was uh, enhanced by the fact that my father at the time was getting old and he died at 92. And although he didn't have Alzheimer's, but his memories were beginning to slip away uh, the way they do. I mean. I'm 82, and I can feel it already. Uh, I remember my childhood, and my past, but don't ask me where I had lunch yesterday, (laughs) because it'll take me a little while to, to, to recall that. But anyway, I was visiting my father. He was living in an assisted living place in Virginia, and I would fly down about every six weeks to see him, and my mother, who was in a nursing home because her health was failing. And um, it was on one particular visit when I began to be newly aware of of my father's losses of of certain memories. And I I was newly aware of that because my brother and I had created an album of sorts of old photographs uh, that was in my father's room, and I would sit with him when I visited, and we would go through that, and there would be places I'd lived, there's a photograph of, of uh, me with my nursemaid in Hawaii in 1939 uh, and, and he would light up and, and remember uh, he had funny memories of that particular nursemaid but anyway, in the course of this particular day looking through that album, there was a picture of me with my sister when we were small children and he stopped for a moment and, and looked at that And then he said, there you are with your sister. And he said, I can't remember what her name is. And I told him her name, Helen. Uh, I said she was named for her grandmother. And uh, and then he looked puzzled, and and he said, whatever happened to her? And I had to tell him about her death, the death of his first child. Surely the most profoundly saddening memory of his life, but it was gone. And um, when I was driving back to the airport after that visit, I began to think about that. And and of course, when writers start thinking, what if this? What if that? Stories begin to take shape. And what I was thinking was, what if there were a way we could manipulate human memory so that we wouldn't have to remember any of the sad or frightening things that had happened to us. Um. And therefore, we would be happier and more comfortable. Uh, Would that be a good thing? Of course, it would not. Uh, That's the conclusion I came to. But that was really the start of of the book, uh, The Giver. Uh, I will add that, let's see, if that was 1992, Mm -hmm. in 1995, I lost a child and my son was killed in the military. And so I've been without my older son for many years now, <clears throat> but uh, and and uh, I'm saddened by the memory of his loss. But much more than that, I'm my life is enhanced by the memory of his his life uh, and what a wonderful kid he was. And and uh, so it's just further confirmation of, about the what the giver tries to tell you, which is that we're made up of. Of both the sad and happy things that happened to us, uh, and, and that to, to lose, to, to shun, to put away those memories that make us uncomfortable, uh, that would be to make us less than human. So that was the beginning of The Giver, and, uh, and a little bit about Carl Gustav Nelson, and I will tell you that quite recently, within the past year, I got an email from a young woman who was doing an article about a very elderly woman in her late 90s out in Santa Barbara, California, a painter. And uh, that woman had suddenly been shown or had come across a copy of The Giver and had known Carl Nelson when they were both young in New York. And and, uh, I ended up talking on the phone to this very elderly woman Uh, shortly before she died, uh, about her memories of Carl. I I think secretly there was a romance. She didn't say that, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) that's my guess. So life comes full circle.
0: I'm curious, when you wrote The Giver, so I read it when I was in middle school, and it would have just come out, so it was Uh a fairly new book. Um, And of course, you know, even now there are conversations about the end and, and what people think actually happens you sort of leave it open-ended did you know at the time that you were that there was more to the story that there would be other books that came after the giver um was that planned at all
2: no uh that was not uh, at all in my in my mind uh i viewed it as an optimistic, though, ambiguous ending. I I kind of liked the mystery of it. Uh, I I thought kids would enjoy creating their own scenario of what happened. And and indeed, perhaps half of the kids who read the book did enjoy that, and the other half were very angry and (laughs) and wrote to me, uh, wanting to know exactly what happened to him. Uh, But that was not the reason that I later wrote the other book. Uh, what happened was this, and I don't know how many years later it was, that I sat down to write the book that became Gathering Blue. And I had written many books after The Giver and before Gathering Blue, but I sat down to write a new book. And I started it the way I always start a new book, I think. I, I somehow, floating into my imagination, uh, a young person appears in some kind of precarious or puzzling situation. And I sat down and began to write about that, which had appeared in my imagination. It was a young girl, and she was sitting beside the dead body of her mother in this very primitive and horrible seeming place. And as I continued writing, uh, I, I I began to, create the place in my mind, uh, and, and to add to it. And I, I began to perceive of it as perhaps almost a prehistoric place. Uh, there was no, uh, you know, people lived in huts, and, and they hunted animals. And, and I began to think I'd have to research uh, cave dwellers and woolly <laughs> mammoths. But as I continued on with the creation of that village, the place where the girl lived, I began to perceive that it could be connected to the giver. Yeah. And uh, later, after... Well, let me let me go back and explain. Uh, I introduced that connection at the very end of the book. Uh, when there's mention of a boy in another village far away, <clears throat> and he has blue eyes, And I think when I first wrote it, I mentioned his name. Someone has traveled to this other place, has returned, and says to the girl, I met this boy there. His name is Jonas. The editor asked me to take the name out so that people wouldn't have to make that connection, uh, but they could if they wanted to, just from the description. And that's what happened. Kids did make that connection. Uh, One of the questions that's been raised since the publication of that book and that connection having been made and then the two subsequent books as well, how is it possible for the in the first book is this very highly sophisticated technologically sophisticated uh, place where the boy lives. How is it possible for that to exist at the same time as the very primitive, place where the girl Kira lives in the, in the second book. And at first I would say to myself, and perhaps I said it to to readers who asked me the question in letters, maybe it's not possible that you have to, I would explain to them the concept of suspension of disbelief. You just have to believe that it's possible. <laughs> but then an interesting thing happened. I have a cousin whose daughter uh, is in the Foreign Service. And, and was at that time in the embassy in Pakistan. I, actually, I'm forgetting what city the embassy of Pakistan is in, but that's where my cousin's daughter, whose name is Betsy, was, was living and working. And at the same time, I had begun, through some organization, to send money each month to a woman in Afghanistan who uh, was a widow with, uh, I think I would call, three children, all sons, and I sent money each month so that her sons could go to school. Uh, and she lived in a hut with no electricity and no plumbing. Now, if you look at a map, you will see that Pakistan and Afghanistan are close enough together that, although it would be very difficult, a person could with difficulty walk from one place to the other and and walk from the place where my, my cousin's daughter, Betsy, sent emails home with photographs uh, and, and you know, was able to do that because of technology. And yet in this other place uh, lived this, this woman to whom I sent money each month. So that kind of answers that question. Mm-hmm. I did not at the... Uh, upon the the publication of Gathering you anticipate two more (laughs) books but um, I think I began to have the same kind of curiosity that readers did and so again several years later I wrote the third again starting out with a young adolescent in this case a boy who as in the two previous books has a uh, uh, magical, in a way, capacity. In the first book, Jonas, it said that he has the capacity to see beyond. In the second book, the girl Kira has a, a magical skill with her hands that enables her, through embroidery, to to create visions of the future. And in the third book, the boy—let me think—what what the name? Is Maddie? You no, know, he's, 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 yeah, he's the third book. Yeah, it's Maddie. <laughs> he was the character in the second book, and now he's older. And he has the uh, the magical capacity to, to heal. Uh, and so then, eventually, I decided, again, uh, because of the mail that I got, uh, to bring all those characters together to let, the readers know what became of each of them. And so I had to create a, a, a fourth young adolescent character, and I decided, and this would answer many questions, to make it the baby of the first book, Gabriel. So he's the, he's the teenager in the fourth book, and I felt that he would be the main character. However, when I began writing, I began with him, and I began with him living with Jonas, who's now a grown man, and beginning to ask questions about his own past. Uh, every book protagonist has something they need to discover, something they need to find. And so that was gonna be the fourth book, Gabe's perhaps returning to the place he'd come from. But in the, in the scene that I was writing, Uh, When he's asking Jonas, and Jonas is telling him a little bit about his own past, uh, Gabe asks, what about my mother? Didn't she want me? And when I wrote that, uh, I began to ask the same question of myself. Who who was his mother? Because we don't know that from the, the first book. He's just an infant who is assigned to a family. And, and so I, I, I set that conversation, that dialogue, that scene aside and began the book again. And so it begins with a young girl Mm -hmm. and, uh, the young girl is probably 14 and she's, she, well, she is 14. It says so in the scene and she's giving birth to an infant who will be taken from her and the rest of the book will be her search for that child. At the same time, by the time you encounter him, Gabe, he's beginning to wonder, what, what, what about my mother? Mm-hmm. Didn't she want me? So the book becomes much longer than the other ones because it has so many characters to, to um, bring back and, and resolve. And uh, I think of the four, the fourth book is, is my favorite. I'll tell you one interesting thing, though. When when a main character appears to me, as each of those did, Jonas, then Kira, and Maddie, they always appear with a name. Uh, I don't sit down thinking, what can this character's name be? They, They appear in my imagination with a name connected to them. And it always seems to be the right name. However, when the girl for the fourth book The girl giving birth on those first pages appeared in my mind. Her name was Mary. And uh, as I continued writing the book, I began to realize that people, readers, reviewers, uh-huh. We're going to uh, assign religious, religious significance to that name, and I didn't intend for it to be there. I've been through that with Jonas. I still get letters about <laughs> all the biblical references, which I did not have in my mind. I mean, they must have been there subconsciously, I so. suppose. But anyway, I went back and, and changed Mary's name and, and, and turned her into the girl who's named Claire on the fourth one. Um, okay, I'll shut up. Oh, no. Are, are you kidding me?
1: I, we're both just sitting here like, this is Lois Lowry telling us stories. This is amazing. But, I, no, I'm, I'm curious because The Giver very much kind of helped launch this entire genre of young adult dystopian novels. And, was, you know, there's been so many that have come since with The Hunger Games and the Divergent series yeah. and all these different books. I'm curious to get your thoughts as someone who helped sort of set the Groundwork for this genre that's that's still popular today. What is it that you think readers, be they young adults or adults or you know anyone in between, why do you think they've grabbed on to this particular type of story? Okay, uh, let
2: me let me first say that I was an English major in college. I went to Brown when I was 17 years old, and uh, I took the requisite English courses, and among the books I read then were some of the classic dystopian novels, uh, 1984, uh, Brave New World, uh, all the ones we, we know so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, that kind of reading was not among my favorite. I've never been a reader of, of uh, science fiction or fantasy, although when I was a woman in my 30s, I believe it was in my 30s that uh, Margaret Atwood's book The uh, Handmaid's Tale came out, and I read that with enormous interest, uh, partially because of the feminism that, that uh, it brought to my attention at, at a time when that was a movement just taking hold. But it was not a genre that, that particularly appealed to me. When I wrote The Giver, I was really uh, writing, as I told you, uh, about a world, a community, I called it, uh, in which people had found a way to manipulate human memory. And I realized that that, of course, would have to be said in the future because we don't yet have the capacity to do that. (laughs) Although, incidentally, I've read in recent years in scientific journals it's been called to my attention that they are finding ways now that they can do that. But at the time I wrote the book, that was not true. And so I, I, I wrote a book that was set in the future, but I completely ignored... I didn't need to deal with the science that went into that, although I still get questions from readers who (laughs) want to know exactly how that works. And and I've had long explanations of the interior workings of our eyes uh, from from kids who are curious about how they lost the ability to see color. Uh, I didn't care about any of that science. And I wrote... Simply as if it were a, a contemporary novel, I created a community, uh, and and the way I do in, in each of my books. Um, but I think the fact that it it postulated a kind of world of the future, and we don't know how long in the future—maybe fifty years, say. In fact. If I remember, and if I don't, remind me to tell you a funny story about one of my grandchildren and, and, and the future 50 years from now. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it did almost immediately, out uh, of publication, uh, acquire uh, an enormous amount of interest from audiences of, of all ages. Uh, kids, of course, they've always been my audience, but also uh, somehow adults grabbed onto it too when it was first published and we got an enormous amount of mail. And my guess is that because the future, I mean today, I, though I've muted it, my TV is still on and I'm watching them impeach the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, the future is so uncertain and, and so often so frightening. that that people uh, grab onto a book, a story, a concept that gives them some way of thinking about a possible future and raises questions that they've had in their own subconscious and begin to grapple with. And uh, they say that The Giver was the first dystopian novel for young people. And that may be true, but certainly there had been the dystopian novels that I had read when I was a young person. So they'd always been out there. But once The Giver was published, it sort of opened the floodgate of, of mm-hmm. people writing novels in the future. And that is still happening, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't keep up with the publishing world the way, way I should. So I don't <laughs> know what's being published this year or last year, except for my own stuff. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's, that's why the interest continues, because we so don't know what's going to happen in the future. When I was a kid, say 17, when I was a teenager, uh, I didn't question the future. It seemed pretty cut and dried to me. I mean, I was a kid in the uh, Eisenhower administration. Everything was pretty ordinary. But, but things are different now, and things are changing very, very quickly. Um, okay, and that brings me to my grandson. I yes. told you to remind me but I remembered my own self. Uh, when The Giver was being made into a movie, I did not have anything to do with the writing of the script, but the director, Philip Noyce, who's a man I liked immensely, uh, he, he emailed me frequently with little questions. And one question was, uh, what should uh, he? Uh, they, the movie was made in South Africa, so he emailed me from Cape Town where they were designing the set. And he said, what should the boy's bedroom look like? And I wrote back and said it should be very stark. You know, there'd be functional things, a bed and desk, uh, someplace to put his clothing. But there wouldn't be anything decorative. If you want something on the wall, it certainly wouldn't be anything uh, in the realm of art. Uh, but it might, he might have on his bedroom wall something from, uh, from his school. Uh, for example, the periodic table of elements. And in fact, later they let me go to, uh, Cape Town for a week and watch while they were filming. And there in the boy's bedroom was the periodic table of elements on his wall. Uh, but when I mentioned that to my grandson, Reese, And Reese is now, yesterday was his birthday, he's 19, he's in college. At the time the film was being made, which was, what, it's now 2019, I think the film was made in 2014, so five years ago, he would have been 14 years old. I think I got all that math. I think so, yeah. That sounds right, right. yeah. (laughs) I mentioned that uh, back and forth with the director to Reese uh, uh, about the periodic table of elements. And he said, what year is this book taking place? Is it about 50 years from now? And I said, yeah, maybe 50 years. And he rolled his eyes and he said, well, there'll be a lot of new elements discovered. (laughs) And he said, and also helium won't exist anymore. Well, I don't know if that's. (laughs) <laughs> true, but Reese is a very smart kid, and if he said it. It probably is true. So, although the periodic table of elements is on Joseph's bedroom wall, it it, uh, it probably is inaccurate for his his uh, time. <laughs> that
0: is hilarious. Um, <laughs> since you uh, you mentioned, you know, you have grandchildren, I'm curious if they have I mean, because we both read your books in school and, mm-hmm. and sort of studied them I'm, I'm wondering if your grandkids read your books in school and sort of how that worked
2: and what that was yeah. like Well, my, my oldest grandson is uh, 36 it's hard to believe that now, I mean, not for you but for me, time has gone so quickly and uh, when he was Probably 14. I'd have to do the math, but he was having to read The Giver in school. He had read it. Um, my grandkids were pretty good about reading the books that I wrote, uh, and my kids as well, and often those books had been dedicated to them. Uh, But I remember James, my oldest grandchild, uh, invited me to his school to speak to his English class. (laughs) Uh, And, in fact, much earlier than that, uh, when he was in first grade, oh, now I'm remembering another funny grandchild story. (laughs) He was in first grade, and I went and spoke to his first grade class about books and writing stories, etc. And I was seated with a little group of kids, that included grandson James, and I asked them each to tell me their name. And the first one said her name was Catherine. And uh, I said, oh, that's a lovely name. I said, that's my mother's name. And the next one was named Brian. And I said, "A oh, funny thing about the name Brian, if you get the vowels mixed up when you write that name, What do you get? And he grinned, and he said, brain. And uh, I guess he knew that already, as all Brian's do. And so as I went around this little circle, I tried to think of something about each child's name. And I got to a little girl who who said her name was Hannah. And I drew a blank. I couldn't think of anything interesting to say about her name. And my grandson tugged at my leg and, and whispered to me, oh, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, see, this is because I'm old and I forget words, and you'll be able to tell me the answer to this. He said, well, her name is, uh, and it's a word that is spelled the same, both forward and backwards. So what is oh, a, a palindrome? A what? A palindrome? Yeah. I think that's he, right, yeah. He, he tugged at me, he said, well, it's a palindrome. Uh, <laughs> Now, that was my funny grandchild, uh, Jane, who's now now married and working and about to start on an m b a. Uh, and now I've forgotten if I was answering oh did that did they read my books mm-hmm. you yeah. know they they were good about about uh, I, I don't think all my grandchildren have read all of my books, but but many of them, I have four grandchildren, many of them have read many of my books. And I'll add that my, my only granddaughter has grown up in Germany, and um, her, her my son in, in the Air Force married a German woman when he was stationed there, and they had just this one little girl, and, and he was killed when his child was just two years old. So my granddaughter, who's now 26, uh, grew up in Germany, and she read my books in uh, both German and English. Not all of them have been translated into many other languages, but certainly *The Giver* and *Number of the Stars*. And it's very gratifying too to know that *Number of the Stars* is taught in the German public schools, where they uh, try very hard in that country uh, to to teach about the the past, which in Germany is very very painful. Uh, but so so I have gone. To my granddaughter's school as well I think she was in about eighth grade and she asked me to speak to her class yeah. and uh, when necessary she translated although they do uh, learn English in school um, oh, I I thought of something funny oh I know what it was yes okay this is funny mm-hmm. I think this is funny when I was leaving that day her English teacher thanked me for Uh, being there, and uh, my granddaughter was walking me to the door of the school and she rolled her eyes and said to me, did you hear what Mrs. So-and-so said, meaning the English teacher, of course, it was a librarian, and I said, well, she thanked me for coming, and my granddaughter said, she thanked you for your visit, (laughs) especially giving W for V, the way they (laughs) often do in Germany, and so many years later, um, I wrote a book called The Willoughbys mm-hmm. in which the same thing happens. The character, one of the characters, uh, substitutes a W for a V because he's, uh, well, I won't bore you with the plot. But anyway, my grandson loved a scene in which the child in this book uh, says he hates his breakfast cereal. He said, he says, it makes me to To (laughs) (laughs) And so, for a long time, my grandsons, who were young at the time, would go and say, it makes me want to (laughs) want it. And that brings me to the other book that I have just finished writing, and which will be published sometime within the next year, which is a sequel uh, to The Willoughby's. It will be The Willoughby's Return. Oh man. I...
1: I was actually, I'm la- we're laughing because you're telling us that you know in your older age you're like forgetting <laughs> things, and here you are like you're literally tying everything together perfectly. I just, the Lois, you've been <laughs> so gracious with your time. This- honestly, I feel like the two of us could listen to you tell stories all day. But very much. seriously, thank you <laughs> so much for joining oh, thank us. You. This was very, wonderful. Very, very fun for me. Yeah. Oh. Well, we very much appreciate it and. I'm just going to say this, and I will tell your publicist the same. You are welcome to come back and tell us stories anytime you would like.
2: I have no end of them, so I'd love to come back sometime. Thank you both.
0: Thank you so much.